Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute in Oakland, California. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. Today, we're talking about the opioid crisis. The opioid epidemic in the U.S. is a national public health emergency, and it's easy to see why. Last year, drug overdoses became the leading cause of death for Americans under 50, and many of those overdoses were linked to opioids. So today we're here with Ruben Cantu, a program manager at Prevention Institute who works with counties in Ohio's that have taken a unique approach to dealing with the opioid epidemic. Welcome, Ruben. Thanks, Andrea. Ruben, you work with some counties in Ohio that are really suffering from the opioid crisis. Can you explain to our listeners what that looks like on the ground? Right. So Ohio is one of the states that's being hardest hit by the opioid epidemic. From 2013 to 2015, we saw unintentional overdose deaths really increase in the state by a large magnitude. And a lot of those unintentional deaths were related to fentanyl use as well as prescription overdoses. So we're seeing a lot of people in communities in Ohio and really across the country that are dealing with families being fragmented and torn apart because of the epidemic. We're seeing people out of work. And really what it looks like is, to folks that are familiar with trauma, we're seeing trauma manifest in these individuals and really across the community. A lot of it due to things like generational use and just the way that it's impacting the fabric of the community. I know it seems like trauma should be a word that anyone would understand, but can you just describe a little bit about really what does trauma mean? A lot of times when we talk about trauma, we're talking about how it impacts a person who's been exposed to violence, who's been exposed to violence in the community, violence in the home, who's been exposed to a family been torn apart, a parent who is a substance user, and That's kind of our understanding of trauma. Um, But one of the things that at Prevention Institute we we like to talk about is the fact that this trauma not only manifests on individuals, but it also manifests in communities as a whole. And what that means is that we see neighborhoods, communities, whether it's a community defined by geography or a community that's defined by a common um, culture or belief such as immigrants or the LGBT community, and we see the way that trauma will impact that community as a whole, not just, not just uh, a collection of individuals, but really the way that we see uh, chronic poverty manifest in some, in some communities and some small towns, the way we see violence manifest in a community as a whole and how that impacts people, or the way we see uh, job loss or the, the, the fact that factories close down and move away and we see uh, chronic disinvestment in a community. I really appreciate that you talked about that because I think many people have heard about adverse childhood experiences, but Prevention Institute talks about adverse community experiences, and it's a little bit different. Right. It's a little bit, it's a little bit different in that when we talk about adverse community experiences, we're kind of, it's almost like we're taking that up a level and talking about how not only that individual and that collection of individuals in a community is dealing with trauma, But the way that an entire community is dealing with trauma because of the harm that's come to that community. And that harm can be in the form of, you know, systemic discrimination. It can be in the form of systemic disinvestment in a community. 
it's the way that you kind of walk through a community sometimes and you feel that you see buildings that are run down. You see um, sidewalks and public spaces that have fallen into disuse. Um, you see stores that have closed down in neighborhoods and nothing has come in to replace them. And you kind of wonder, what must living in a neighborhood like this be like? And even though there are a lot of positive ways that people adapt to adversity, people come together more strongly, people rely on each other for support, there is still that underlying trauma that's going on in that community that's impacting people's abilities to thrive, to build resilience, to be strong in the face of those traumas and to push back against it. You mentioned resilience. And I know that usually when you talk about community trauma, you talk about community trauma and resilience. Right. So what's the resilience piece and how does that help communities figure out how to address what's going on? So resilience is the, the ability of a community or an individual to be able to thrive. A lot of times we think about it as being able to bounce back from something that's hurt them. But we like to think about it as not just bouncing back, but being able to bounce forward and push against the things that have hurt that person or that have hurt that community. A lot of times in the communities that we work with, we've seen that the first step in dealing with trauma and building resilience is to heal from that trauma. So we really need to be able to have the opportunity to bring the community together so that they can talk about the harms, identify the harms, and figure out how they want to band together to be able to work on them. Building, you know, community organizations, having town hall meetings, having protests and marches, that's a way for a community to like build their cohesion, pull themselves together and be able to be a stronger unit to be able to address the trauma. And then from there, they can go on to identifying the different kinds of strategies or ways that they want to address that. So for instance, some of the communities that we've been working with in Ohio, they've identified that one of the things that's happened as a result of the opioid epidemic, and that's kind of led to a community feeling like they need to turn to substance use, is that there's social isolation as a result of factories closing down and people moving out of their communities. And one of the counties that we're working with has decided to do is work on re-refurbishing and bringing back up a community park that's fallen into disrepair and having that be a place where people can gather, talk to their neighbors, and build a sense of community. And they see that as meeting several different needs um, in the community. Tell me about how this approach in Ohio that you are working with counties on is different maybe from the traditional approach to the opioid crisis. I think a lot of times when we think about the opioid crisis, we think about it exactly that way, as a crisis. There's a parable that we like to talk about in public health circles where there's three sisters walking along the banks of a river, and they come across a lot of children drowning in the river. One sister jumps into the river and starts rescuing the kids and pulling them out of the water. The second sister jumps into the water and starts teaching them how to swim. The third sister breaks away from where they are and starts walking further upstream. And when the sisters see what she's doing, they kind of shout out to her and ask, hey, where are you going? There's a lot of stuff we need to do here to rescue these kids and to teach them how to swim. And she says, I need to go further upstream to figure out what's causing them to jump into the river to begin with. And while we're doing this work in Ohio, a lot of people are where those first two sisters are. 
They're trying to rescue people that are overdosing and giving them, you know, shots of naloxone and other other drugs to try to get them to come back from overdose. Or they're trying to put into place strategies and programs to try to get people to not use or to wean them off of their use. And what we're trying to get the folks that we're working with to realize is it's very important to do those two things, but we also need to try to figure out what's causing people to do that to begin with and how we can try to stop that harm from happening. So it's been a bit of a it's been a bit of a challenge for people to try to take that approach because they're in the middle of a crisis. We've we're talking with folks who are saying, you know, we're having one overdose death a week if not more than that. And it's hard for them to make the case to their partners that they need to also be working on figuring out what they can do to build the community resilience to not only move away from substance use, but also to prevent it from happening. There's a group that's trying to work with mothers and children who are facing very low-income lives and looking for housing that would be supportive and that would be safe for them. And they realize that not having housing and not having higher incomes is one of the things that's pushing them to use to kind of numb the pain. So, you know, they're, they're looking at building partnerships with Parks and Rec, with housing, with employers in the, in the communities to really try to address what are the things within the community, within the fabric of the community that they can try to improve to make the community stronger and be able to move, uh, to move forward and build that resilience. I also wanted to talk to you about the issue of trauma for immigrants and refugees. That's another topic we're hearing about all the time because of what's happening with immigrant children being taken away from their parents at the border. And I know that you have experience working with a group in San Diego that is applying this approach to immigrants and refugees. So can you talk about that? Yes, I, I can, and I'm, I'm really excited to talk about them. So as part of our Making Connections for Mental Health and Well-Being Among Men and Boys Initiative, which is funded by the Movember Foundation, we're working with a group in San Diego called United Women of East Africa Support Team. And with their coalition of partners, one of whom is an organization called Partnership for the Advancement of New Americans. And this is a group that works primarily with East African refugees, folks that left war-torn countries and came to the U.S. and really are facing conditions in this country that are not that much better for them than, than, than they were back home. Um, Jama Mohammed, who runs the initiative at United Women, talks about the fact that they left they left war, they left um, families being separated and murdered and houses exploding and being bombed. And when they heard they were coming to the U.S., they were so excited. They were like, oh, the U.S., land of opportunity. And then they got here and realized that they didn't know the language. They were ostracized due to racism, due to Islamophobia, since a, a high percentage of them are Muslim. And it's led to... It's led to the community being isolated and also not having the supports that they need. Um, there's a great network of organizations that have popped up in San Diego, which has one of the highest um, percentage of East African refugees um, in the country. 
And these organizations are mostly led by women um, because a lot of the, the fathers and husbands either stayed behind or were killed in fighting back in Somalia and other countries in East Africa. And these women banded together to like form these organizations to provide the support for their kids that they knew were going to need the support as they grew up. And so what United Women did as they entered into this initiative making connections with us, um, they empowered the young men in the community to go out and ask people, ask their peers, what are, what are the needs in the community? What is it that, um, what is it that's driving your feelings of depression or isolation? Um, and what is it that would really help to improve your well-being? What would make you feel better? What would make you feel well? And they came back with a number of different things. One was the fact that they just needed a place where they could um, be together as a community and share their struggles with each other in kind of a non-judgmental place um, where everybody understood where they were coming from. They had a, a good – they would have a, a grasp of each other's culture and community and could kind of get back to those roots. Another big issue that they faced was violence in the community. So they, they needed to work on strategies to try to address violence. And then housing was also a big issue for them. A lot of them were – paying, you know, really high rent, um, were, it had fear of displacement because of gentrification in their, in their neighborhood, which is the City Heights neighborhood in San Diego. And so the first strategy that they put into place as part of their work is they built a, um, they built a hub for the, for, the, for the young men in the community to come together. And it's been it's been a huge success. Uh, they started out opening up this hub, which is on the second floor of their office, for the young men to come together to talk to each other. They bring in guest speakers every once in a while to talk about, you know, this is how you write a resume or this is how you look for jobs or this is how you, you know, you know, do better in school so that they can get those kinds of messages as well as just having a space where they can come together, play games, you know, watch TV. They've started up a, a basketball league for the young men. And through that also incorporating discussions and talks so that they can talk about the things within themselves that they need to build up so that they can be part of, 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 of the community. A lot of them talk about how they have to wear two or three different masks. You know, they have to act a certain way at school and they have to act a certain way at home when they're with their family who are more traditional. They have to act a different way on the street. And they've seen some really great strides and advancements where, you know, all anecdotal because we're still in the process of evaluating the project. But, you know, the number of kids that hang out on the streets where they would be more likely to engage in unsafe activities has dropped. More people are – more of the kids are hanging out in the hub, hanging out with each other or building on those relationships that they've developed in the hub. One of the things that they're going to be moving toward – and that they have been moving toward over the last year is in addition to doing all of this other um, training and capacity building with the kids, they're building their capacity to be act ad advocates so that they can actually go to their county board of supervisors and advocate for inclusionary housing policy and, and things like that. And a lot of that training is coming from this other organization, the Partnership for the Advancement of New Americans, or PANA, which works across different immigrant and refugee populations. And they've really been at the forefront of being activists. They 
were one of the organizing forces behind, you know, having people show up at the airports when the um, when the travel bans were first put into place, and really getting people to be active and be vocal. That's that's, you know, whether they recognized it or not, and and I think that they do because they're they're pretty um, hip to PI's work. That's one of the ways that you can um, try to counter the trauma that that people are facing. It's it's a way to kind of build um, the strength in the community, the the, eff- the self-efficacy in a community to be able to push against the things that are traumatizing them. And doing that kind of work hand-in-hand hand with actually advocating for policy change, which they're also doing, is a really great exemplar of the kind of resilience building that we're looking at, that, that we're trying to highlight in our communities. We don't have much more time, but I have one more question, and that is what advice do you have for other people who are working with communities that have experienced trauma? So one of the the questions, and this is a key question that we asked folks as we were starting to do the work in Ohio with folks working on the opioid epidemic, is let's just, you know, we know that there's a crisis, we know that there's a problem, whether it's climate change-related catastrophes, the opioid epidemic, violence in your neighborhood. Um, It could be anything. But being able to stop and take a step back and ask the question, what is it that's driving that problem? What is it that's causing that problem in the first place? And when we were doing the work in Ohio, sometimes people would revert to a lot of the things that we hear of a lot, like, you know, it's overprescription. Of, of opioids, and we had to stop and say, okay, but why are people being overprescribed opioids? And people would have, you know, a couple of different responses, you know, sometimes things around doctors not having, you know, solid prescribing practices. But we really wanted to get at what's driving the behavior. What is it in the community environment that's driving the behavior to want to go in and, and, and be prescribed opioids or what's, what in the community is driving um, folks um, to, to, to violence. And there's always, there's always another reason why. And, it, and it's usually something that's rooted in our communities, whether it's the actual built environment, you know, housing, transportation, what a community looks like and feels like the things that are more accessible and available for folks in communities, but it's also around the fabric of the community and and the opportunities that are available to folks, but also the relationships, the networks, the the norms in community. Um, A lot of times it has to do with norms. And in Ohio, we heard a lot of that. There's a lot of norms around, you know, the easy answer is to turn to prescription drugs to numb the pain or there's norms around intergenerational substance use. And we need to look at what's driving those norms to be able to figure out what we need to change things so that we can prevent them from happening in the first place. Thanks so much for spending this time with us, Ruben. And thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about today's show, visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. And we'd love to hear your ideas and feedback. Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention, I-N-S-T.